The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Uh, Let's see here. We're going to read the 84th Psalm. Yeah, beautiful words. Let's see here. To the chief musician on an instrument of Gath, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts. My King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Selah. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage as they pass through the valley of Bakha. Bakha means weeping. They make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, Blessed is the man who trusts in you. Leviticus 4, verses 1 through 12. This is entitled, The Sin Offering, Part 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and does any of them, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, Then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish as a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, lay his hand on the bull's head, and kill the bull before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting, and he shall pour the remaining blood of the bull at the base of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. He shall take from it all the fat of the bull as the sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat which is on the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys he shall remove as it was taken from the bull of the sacrifice of the peace offering and the priest shall burn them on the altar of the burnt offering. But the bull's hide and all its flesh with its head and its legs, its entrails and off all the whole bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn it on wood with fire where the ashes are poured out. It shall be burned. There's an elderly gentleman who comes to 7-Eleven that I work at many mornings. I'll be there doing my thing, and he shows up. 
He's a really nice guy. And after seeing me work for several weeks or even several months, he came up and got friendly with me, as many people eventually do. They realize that I'm not just a bum sorting through the garbage, but rather I'm the guy picking up and taking out the garbage. I guess the bare feet, the dirty clothes, and the shaggy beard lead them to the initial impression, which has to be overcome through repetitive visual experience. But as I tell folks once they get to know me, I'm not going to wear a suit and tie to take out the trash. Anyway, this guy eventually found out that I preach, and probably he heard one of the people behind the counter holler out, good morning, pastor, when I walk in to get the trash bags. And I think they do this on purpose to see the reaction of the people standing in line looking at me as if I'm the one that needs to be ejected from the store. Somehow he figured it out. And since then, he has come up to me and he's hinted at wanting to come by the church sometime. Yeah. Each time he does, I tell him he's always welcome. I've let him know that he would be a spring chicken here. You see, he's only in his 80s. I tell him this so that he knows we're not in a biker church or something like that. He's driven by. He knows where it is. And I know he's looked into the windows. I just know it. He really wants to come by, but I think he's afraid of something in his past which he thinks will prevent him from being accepted. Maybe he thinks hell's fire will burn him up when he steps through the door. I just don't know. Whatever it is, he must be ignorant of God's grace, and he must have gone astray at some point in his life in a way which he feels is simply beyond that grace. Our text verse comes from Hebrews chapter 5. It's verses 1 through 3. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. My old friend at 7-Eleven came up to me the week that I typed this sermon, and he said, I know what you can do for me. When I die and get up to the gates, I'm hoping that you will put in a good word for me. I told him that wouldn't do any good at all. I said that if he was hoping on me as being his advocate, he had his hope in the wrong place. But I told him that Jesus would put in a good word for him if he would just receive him. And he backed away, as he always does. And he said, well, I was really just kidding, you know. I know that he wasn't. I know it. He's truly scared of death, and he sees that I am not. He wants someone he can trust to help him with the problem that this person knows. He knows it exists. As I sat typing this sermon, I also sat praying. He needs Jesus. We all need Jesus. Every one of us knows that the disconnect is there. Some shun it. Some ignore it. Some can't stop thinking about it. Some try to earn their way around it but we all know that it is there. God took care of it for us. It's so simple to get it, and yet it takes the greatest act of all to receive it, to put aside oneself and to come with empty hands. But when we do, the sin debt is paid and the restoration is available. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It is all about Jesus. He is our sin offering and he is our place of propitiation. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have two thoughts for you today. The first is the sin offering. It's verses one and two. Verse one. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, 
These words form the first introductory words since Leviticus 1, verse 1. In other words, there were the words of Leviticus 1.1, which said, Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Since that time, there's been one continuous proclamation from the Lord. It included the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering. Those were all noted in order, and their particular order was given for specific reasons, which were all detailed. Each of those offerings was already known to generations past, but they were detailed again in order to give them both legal sanction under the law of Moses and to exactingly detail how the offerings were to be made. And as we saw, they all pointed to Christ in every single way. The offerings of chapters 4 and 5 are new types of offerings which are being introduced into the Bible. And therefore, they are now preceded by these offset introductory words. The first three chapters were probably all spoken at the same time to Moses as he penned them, and he penned what he was told to write down. Now, an entirely new train of thought is being presented. It may be that he compiled the first instructions on one day, and then these new ones come on another day. Whatever is the case, Moses is certainly in the most holy place of the sanctuary, where he receives the oracles of God. This is certain based on the words of Exodus 25, which said this, You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Concerning these instructions and how they logically follow the previous offerings, Matthew Henry states the following. But I want you to know he's got an error in here, which I will explain with a later quote. Burnt offerings, meat offerings, and peace offerings, those first three that we looked at, had been offered before the giving of the law upon Mount Sinai. And in these, the patriarchs had respect to sin, to make atonement for it. But the Jews were now put into a way of making atonement for sin, more particularly by sacrifice as a shadow of good things to come. Yet the substance is Christ, and that one offering of himself by which he put away sin. The sins for which the sin offerings were appointed are supposed to be open acts. This is where I start to disagree with him. They are supposed to be sins of commission, things which ought not to have been done. Omissions are sins and must come into judgment, yet what had been omitted at one time might be done at another. But a sin committed was past recall. They are supposed to be sins committed through ignorance. This chapter, dealing with sin offerings, is most important. Where the previous offerings were voluntary, these are required. They must be made, and they were actually needed to be made before any of the other offerings mentioned so far could be accepted. As there is a rift between God and man because of sin, the sin had to be dealt with in order to restore a propitious relationship between the two. These sin offerings were intended to do just that. In the atonement of sin, propitiation was restored. And what that means, it means to make propitious or to make happy. There's a happiness restored between God and man. Because these sin offerings are mandated, it shows us that the blood of previous sacrifices was insufficient for the purpose of full atonement. In this, we are taught an immensely important lesson. This sin offering looks forward to the cross of Christ Jesus. He is the true and necessary sin offering for mankind. In him, sin is atoned for, wrath is appeased, and propitiation is restored. 
Each offering looks to the cross in one way or another, but there is a logical need for them to come in a certain order. The sin must be dealt with first. Only then can the other offerings have any value at all. That Christ is our sin offering is stated many times in the New Testament, such as this in Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 14. It says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Christ's cross was a one-time and for-all-time sin offering for the people of the world. We are, as it says, perfected forever through his cross. Verse 2, speak to the children of Israel, saying, Daber el bene Yisrael. These are the exact same words that were said in Leviticus 1 verse 2. They tell us that the instructions given to Moses are to be relayed directly to the people of Israel and not merely to the priests who will receive the offerings, which will be laid out next. This then is a corporate instruction intended for all of the covenant people. Though the priests were intended to follow through with the words of instruction, as well as maintain the oracles of God, the words were to be known and they were to be adhered to by the people as well. In other words, just as the word of God is intended for all people today, it was also intended for all people in the past as well. It is true that there weren't printing presses, and there wasn't a copy of the word in every tent, but the word was not to be secreted away from the people. They were to be explained what it said, and they were to pay heed to those regulations. As these words are to the whole congregation, it is to the people who are already in a covenant relationship with God. As this is true, they are the people to whom the promise of Genesis 3, verse 15, will come through. That is the promise of the seed of the woman who will come to crush the serpent's head. And because this is so, then all of what they are required to do in the coming regulations merely look forward to him. As we are told in Hebrews chapter 10, here's what it says again in Hebrews 10. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very images of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers were once purified would have no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. In other words, everything given in these sacrifices is actually temporary and ineffective, except as it points to the coming Christ. How people miss this, even to this day, to me, is truly astonishing. Verse 2 continues, If a person sins, nefesh ki techata, if a soul wanders away. The word for sin, chata, means just that. It means to miss or to go wrong. If one shoots an arrow at a mark and misses, this is the idea that is given. And if you think of what I told you about me going to the gun range two days ago, if missing that mark was a sin, I would be the biggest sinner of all because I could not hit that target at all. I got to tell you what. But there is a mark or a standard which God expects. However, man is prone to miss that mark. When this is the case, a remedy is required. The words here apply to the entire chapter not just what will be stated in verse 3. In other words, if a person's sins is dealing with the priest of verse 3, 
of the whole congregation in verse 13, of the ruler of the people in verse 22, and of any of the common people in verse 27. Everything from verse 3 through verse 34 is included in the words that we're reading right now. Verse 2 continues, unintentionally. This is key to understanding much of what lies ahead. If one sins intentionally, or as the Bible will often call it, with a high hand, it calls for punishment. This will be explained later. What is being mandated here is a sacrifice for unintentional sin. However, exactly what that means by saying intentionally and unintentionally takes very careful consideration. The word here for unintentionally is shegaga. This is the first of 19 times that it's going to be used in the Bible. It signifies a mistake or an inadvertent transgression, such as through error, ignorance, and so on. Suffice it to say for now that the two classifications certainly refer to the relationship of the conscience by the offender towards God. It cannot relate to outward action alone. In other words, if a person kills another person and is unrepentant, it is intentional sin. However, if a person kills another person and is repentant, it is not necessarily intentional. The account of King David and Uriah shows us this about as clearly as any other in Scripture. Therefore, it logically follows that if a person refuses to bring a sacrifice for his sin, which he is aware of, or if he brings a sacrifice with an uncaring conscience, meaning what he is doing is for show and not from the heart, then his sin must be considered intentional. This, for example, was seen in the case of Cain's offering. The rule must apply in both ways, and Scripture will bear this out. This then explains the otherwise difficult passage, which is found in Hebrews 10, verse 26. People struggle over this, but the answer is given in what we're looking at right now. For This is Hebrews 10. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Our relationship with God always comes down to a matter of the heart. One who has sinned and has not come through Jesus has no sacrifice which is suitable to atone for what he has done. The 19th Psalm speaks of that which is unintentional and that which is intentional. Here's what it says there. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Verse 2 continues, Against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and does any of them. Going against the commandments of the Lord include not doing that which should be done and doing that which should not be done. When the Lord speaks, his word is law. Therefore, when one strays away from what he has spoken, it is a violation of his law. Of this, John Gill states the following. This is the other quote that I want you to listen to. It kind of uh, matches what Matthew Henry said earlier, and it is not correct. The Jewish writers distinguish the commandments of the Lord into affirmative and negative and make their number to be 613. 248 are affirmative according to the number of bones in a man's body. And 365 are negative ones, according to the number of days of the year. And they observe, it is only the transgression of negative precepts that is here meant, and for which a sin offering was to be brought. Like Matthew Henry's comments earlier, which say something similar, this is not correct. 
This cannot mean negative commandments only. To leave undone that which should be done may be correctable to some point, but not in all instances. If someone transgresses, they have sinned. The verse doesn't delineate between negative and positive. We cannot justify this stand. It would be to ignore the Lord's command. Further, a biblical year is 360 days. It is not 365 days. Also, there are 270 bones in the human body at birth. After some fuse together, we are left with 206, not 248. The Jewish writers are wrong in all three cases. An offering for sin to restore the peace, I come to petition my God at the burnt altar. Until I do, the enmity will never cease, but knowing he will forgive, in this I will not falter. At the altar and by the door of the tent, the animal is slain, its life ebbs away. In that exchange, God's wrath is spent, harmony is restored, and has come a new day. Innocent and pure, no fault of its own, the death, it truly touches my heart. But in this exchange, I am clearly shown that only through death can there be a new start. Thank God that another can die in my place. In his death, I can again look upon God's face. Our second thought today is the sin of the high priest, verses 3 through 12. Verse 3, if the anointed priest sins, hakohen hamashiach, the priest, the anointed. This is the high priest. This term is used only four times in the Bible. Three are in this chapter and one more time in chapter 6. The provision is for him if he sins. This immediately tells us something we've already learned in the earlier Exodus sermons. It shows that the high priest of the law of Moses is a fallible person and that he can never be made perfect by the law of Moses. Both are to be clearly understood from the context. Because of this, the truth of Hebrews 10 verse 1 is made clear. The law can make none perfect. It could only anticipate the coming of Christ who would fulfill the law and set it aside in order to bring in a new covenant in his blood. As Matthew Henry says about this, the law begins with the case of the anointed priest. It is evident that God never had any infallible priest in his church upon earth when even the high priest was liable to fall into sins of ignorance. This sin offering is for the high priest. Each subsequent sin offering will be a grade lower. It will next be for the congregation as a whole, then the prince of the congregation, and then for the individual. The importance of the position is how they are listed. Verse 3 continues, bringing guilt on the people. When the high priest sinned, the entire nation became guilty because of his sin. He was the representative of the people to God. No person could have his sins removed until the one who mediated for the people had his sins atoned for. Therefore, all who were under his authority became guilty through him. The opposite is true for us then. In Christ, who bears no guilt, we too are deemed not guilty. God is not counting our sins against us because of our perfect mediator who covers us with his perfection. Verse 3 continues, Then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish as a sin offering. The sin offering for the high priest is the same as that for the sin committed by the entire congregation, which is noted in verse 14. The bull thus stands for the people, just as the high priest stands for the people. This will become clear in Leviticus chapter 16. On the day of atonement, the high priest must sacrifice for his own sins first with a bull. After that, the sins of the congregation are dealt with by using a ram. 
as this is so, the bull is typical of Christ. And this is actually pictured in the very first sentence of the Bible, where the middle of the seven words is spelled with two letters, an aleph and a tav. Bereshit bara Elohim et, that word right there, hashamayim ve'et ha'aretz. All right, the aleph, the letter aleph is represented by a bull in Paleo-Hebrew. If you look at the Old Hebrew, it's actually a bull. And the tav is represented by a cross. The bull and the tav thus then picture Christ and the cross, right in the middle of the first sentence of the Bible. The par, or bull, comes from the word parar, which carries the meaning of defeat or to make void, although it can be variously translated. The idea of Christ is written all over this. It is he who defeated the devil, making void that which the devil had wrought. This required bull is to be, as it says, tamim, or without blemish. Again, as in all of the sacrifices, it looks to Christ. Only a perfect offering could be considered an acceptable sin offering. And as before, it looks to Christ, our perfect sin offering. Each detail is given for this purpose and with an eye to what is coming in him. Verse 4, he shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. As has been seen before, presenting the offering at the door of the tent of meeting actually means that it's being offered at the altar. But it is the altar that then allows symbolic access through the door. The connection between the altar and the doorway is inseparable. Verse 4 continues, lay his hand on the bull's head. Here we have a man who has sinned laying his hand on a perfect bull, one without blemish. It is also an animal without the ability to reason, which implies it is innocent. Each detail looks to Christ. We have the sinner in need of a savior and the innocent man who is the perfect substitute. The high priest himself places his hands on the bull. Thus, he is acknowledging that this is his sacrifice. He is the offender and it is his offering. He is asking that the offended, meaning God, will accept the bull, which looks forward to Christ in his place. The implication is that if it's not accepted, then his life is already lost and he would remain lost. Further, it's implied that this sacrifice is sufficient to accomplish the mission. The Lord has mandated it and therefore it is suitable to the task. The sin is symbolically transferred from the high priest to the bull. This is known as imputation. The bull is now reckoned as receiving his sin, and he is reckoned as receiving the bull's innocence. However, unlike what this bull pictures, meaning Christ, any time that this man sins, another sacrifice must be made. Therefore, it can only mean one thing, which is that this sacrifice is but a temporary stay of God's wrath, anticipating a final, more perfect offering to come. Verse 4 continues, and kill the bull before the Lord. It does not say that the bull could be kept in a pen separate from all the other bulls for the rest of its life, nor could it be sent to Exile Island to live at its days. As with all such offerings, the Bible says that there can be no atonement for sin without the shedding of blood. And for us, there is no other atonement for sin than that of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He had to die in order for us to be saved. Verse 5. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of meeting. Something new is now done with the blood of the bull. The previous sacrifices had the blood splashed around on the altar of burnt offering. Now, however, the blood must be brought into the tent of meeting itself. What was sufficient before is not sufficient here. The reason is because it involves the mediator 
who stands between the people and the Lord. As he is the one to come into the holy place each day, he would be unqualified to do so unless his sin was dealt with first. His duties would be ineffective, and therefore there would be no forgiveness for the people that he represented. Verse 6, the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. With the blood of the bull, he was only to go as far as the veil. His duties as mediator prohibited him from going behind the veil except once a year and that only on the Day of Atonement. Therefore, any sin committed during the year, the shed blood was needed as far as his regular duties would allow him to go. In the holy place, he was to dip his finger into the blood. The word gives the sense of immersion. In other words, it wasn't just the tip of the finger, but he immersed the finger in the blood. From there, he was to nazah, or sprinkle the blood seven times before the Lord, who was residing there behind the parroquet, or the veil. Thus it says, in the face of the veil. The word for finger, or etzba, comes from another word, tseba, which indicates dyed material, and thus one gets the idea of grasping something. Therefore, the finger is that which accomplishes a task. The creation is said to be the work of the Lord's fingers in the 8th Psalm. Thus, in this verse, the mercy, the refuge, and the remission of the sins is granted by God, but it is accomplished by the work of the petitioner's fingers. This word, nazah, or sprinkle, is used now for only the second time in the Bible. It was first used in Exodus when the oil of ordination was called for in order to be sprinkled on Aaron and his sons, something that will actually happen in a few more sermons. Now it is used for the second time in the atonement process for the high priest, this word sprinkle. The reason for the seven sprinklings, and I want you to listen carefully because there's been some very fanciful interpretations of this, claiming that this is the number of times that Christ shed his blood during the time leading up to the cross. Okay, you're going to read this eventually. That's not true. However, there is no such analysis which can be borne out by the writers of the gospel. That has to be forced in order to arrive at the number. He shed blood. He did shed blood when he wept. His hands and feet were pierced also, right? Do we count them as one cumulatively? Or do we count them one for the hands and one for the feet, meaning two times, or for the four appendages? He certainly bled when he was whipped, but the record does not say this. He probably bled when the crown of thorns was placed on his head, but again, the record does not say this. He bled internally through bruising, but that doesn't qualify for shed blood. In the end, we can only use what is explicit in the Bible, and doing so leaves nothing of what matches what is called for here. And the reason why I say this is because it's a very popular interpretation. It's very fanciful, but it does not match what the Bible says, and you can only go by the words of Scripture. Simply, seven is the number of spiritual perfection, and it is used countless times in Scripture to denote this. There's no reason to go beyond this basic and full explanation. As Christ Jesus is the epitome of spiritual perfection, the sprinkling of the blood is emblematic of this innate perfection which was given for the sins of his people. The seven sprinklings are done to petition the Lord's mercy and to acknowledge the death of the innocent substitute. That this is done before the parroquet is of great significance, though. As we saw in Exodus, the word parroquet means veil. But it comes from the word perrek, which means cruelty or rigor. And that comes from an unused root, which means to break apart or to fracture. On one side is the Lord, on the other side is fallen man. 
the veil with cherubim woven into it is a picture of the fracture between God and man which occurred at the fall. When Adam sinned, he was cast to the east of Eden where cherubim were placed as guards. With the sin of the high priest, all access to God is lost, even to the prayers of the people. In the sprinkling, the blood before the veil, it is asking that the mediation would again be allowed so that he would hear the prayers of his people. This continues to be seen in the next verse, verse 7. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. Before going on, what does incense picture in the Bible? Prayer. This verse corresponds somewhat to that of Exodus 29, verse 12, which details the ordination of Aaron and his sons. The ordination made them acceptable to serve as priests, but his sin now has caused that to cease until it is atoned for. As we saw in Exodus, the altar of incense corresponds directly to the ark with its mercy seat. Incense signifies the prayers of the people. The incense is the only thing that would waft through the veil and into the Lord's immediate presence each day. If the sins of the high priest were not atoned for, then the incense placed there would not be considered acceptable to the Lord. Therefore, the altar of incense had to be atoned for as well. Are you seeing? Everything keeps pointing to what God is trying to show us, what Christ Jesus did for us. Every word of it, every single word. Putting the blood on the horns or carnot of the altar is symbolic of petitioning for mercy and safe refuge. Horns are a symbol of strength. Just as a horn grows out of the head of the animal, these likewise protrude directly from the altar. They demonstrate the intercessory power of Christ to God. For the blood to be placed on them signifies the petitioning of mercy because wrath has already been transferred to the bull. In this application, then, there is a transcendence from the earthly to the heavenly realm as the prayers go through the veil and into the presence of God. Verse 7 continues, And he shall pour the remaining blood of the bull at the base of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. The Hebrew here actually says all the blood. But the word remaining must be implied. Any blood left after that which was sprinkled was to be poured at the base or the foundation of the altar. It was not to be splashed on the altar as was done in the previous offerings. The atonement within the holy place was sufficient, and so the remainder was to be poured out, allowing it to sink into the ground. Verse 8, he shall take from it all the fat of the bull as the sin offering. After the application and disposal of the blood, proving the death of the animal... There was now the job of handling the body of the animal. As it is a sin offering, it could not be wholly burnt on the altar. Therefore, the fat alone was to be removed. Verse 8 continues, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat which is on the entrails. These words are almost identical to Leviticus 3, 3, word for word. The same with the peace offering, so with the sin offering. Verse 9, another very curious verse in the Bible. The two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove. These words are identical letter to letter with Leviticus 3 verse 4 with but the addition of a single letter, yud, in the middle of the word translated as them. It's another mystery which I have absolutely no explanation for, but from which I did obtain a very large size headache trying to figure out why is that there. One letter added in in two separate verses that we saw last week and now this week. And as I said, I count every letter. I look at them. I number them. 
Why is that there, Lord? Someday he's going to show us, and I can't wait to know. Verse 10, as it was taken from the bull of the sacrifice of the peace offering, and the priest shall burn them on the altar of the burnt offering. The same procedure is given for these parts that was given for the peace offering with one notable difference. In verse 3, 5, if you turn back to that verse, it said that the peace offering was to be burnt on the altar upon the burnt sacrifice, meaning the daily offering. They give a lamb in the morning, they give a lamb in the evening. However, this sin offering would need to precede the daily offering, which could not be considered acceptable until the sin was dealt with first. It would make no sense to offer the daily offering, which would not be accepted because of the mediator's sin. Whenever the sin was discovered, it had to take priority. This obviously shows us that no offering to God can be acceptable until our sin is dealt with first. Above all, Christ is our sin offering. After that, he fulfills every other type in the proper order. Though God does not exist in time, there is a logical order of sacrifices for us who do. This is seen in the many details of the offerings which are carefully laid out for us. However, as with the parts of the peace offering, the same symbolism is seen in the parts of the sin offering. They represent the abundance of the very deepest parts of Christ the man. The fat is the abundance and health of life. The kidneys signify the mind and reasoning. The fat by the loins signifies where one places his confidence. And the fat lobe above the liver represents the emotions and the feelings of the person. These were then to be offered to the Lord because they symbolized his most intimate aspects. They are the very substance of who Christ is, and so they are returned to God by fire. Verse 11, But the bull's hide and all its flesh, with its head and legs, its entrails, and offal. This signifies all the rest of the bull which is left. Only the blood and the items of the previous verses are excluded. Even the skin, which is normally given to the administering priest, is included here. Verse 12 finishes with these words, The whole bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn it on wood with fire. Where the ashes are poured out, it shall be burned. The flesh of some sin offerings was acceptable to be eaten by the priest, as will be later explained. However, Leviticus 6 verse 30 will show why it is not the case here. Here's what it says in Leviticus 6.30. No sin offering from which any of the blood is brought into the tabernacle of meeting to make atonement in the holy place shall be eaten. It shall be burned in the fire. The disposal of the animal is determined by the use of the blood. Because the blood of the bull was brought into the holy place, the animal must be burned and not consumed. Instead, the bull was to be taken outside of the camp to a clean place and wholly burned. The sinfulness of the sin, being that of the high priest, is indicated in the need for the blood to be brought into the holy place and for the remainder of the animal to be taken outside of the camp. The extreme treatment of both shows us the most severe nature of the offense and so an even greater intensity of the atonement which was provided is also seen. The acceptance of the bull's death as a substitute highlights the extremely merciful act of forgiveness granted to this high priest. In his cleansing, the body of the bull now bore the sin of the mediator, and because of this, it needed to be purged from the camp entirely. And what a picture of Christ to finish our verses today. I've already shown that the bull pictures Christ, but this isn't just me making a dubious connection and then applying it to him. Rather, the Bible explicitly shows us the connection between the two. 
In Hebrews chapter 13, we see why these requirements were given here in Leviticus and what they prefigure. It says there in Hebrews 13, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. What was given to Israel in type and shadow is realized in the fullness in Christ. There is a problem which infects man, and its source is that of the devil himself. The only way to defeat what he did was for Christ to take it away from us. We are told that he was made to be sin so that we could then become the righteousness of God in him. What a bargain. I mean, what a bargain that God has offered us. All of our misdeeds, all of our errors and failings, and our once lost state is taken away and it's nailed to the cross through the death of Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry explains it in his own eloquent way. All pretensions to act without error are sure marks of Antichrist. The beast was to be carried without the camp and there burned to ashes. This was a sign of the duty of repentance, which is the putting away sin as a detestable thing, which our soul hates. The sin offering is called sin. What they did to that, we must do to our sins. The body of sin must be destroyed. And the body of sin can be destroyed. Through faith in what Jesus Christ did, it can be completely removed so that fellowship with God is possible once again. That is what Christ did for us by having his own life taken from him as he suffered outside the camp. Let us go there to him and be joined to him through the greatest act of love ever expressed. Let us go to Calvary. And real quickly, let me just explain it to you in case you have forgotten it, that Jesus Christ died to take away our sins. How many times have we said that today? 872? But that's what he came to do. He gave his perfect life in exchange for our sins and his perfect righteousness was imputed to us in that act. Exactly what we're seeing with the high priest here. We're going to see something similar in another set of verses next week, and each one of them will go down a lesser grade. But every person has sinned, according to the Bible, and we all need that atonement. It's just that in Israel, a common person needed a mediator, whereas the mediator is the mediator. And so if he sinned, it's a more serious infraction. He is typical of Christ himself. And so when he sins, the, the severity of it is very, very, very sinful, okay? And so this is what Christ came to do, was to show us that what he could never do, Christ could do. He took that away for us. And I would hope, you know, I was hoping actually over the past week and a half that I would see my old friend at 7-Eleven. I was going to say, you know what, I have a sermon I'd like you to come and hear. And I was going to say, come on by Sunday and you'll hear something that maybe will touch your heart. And then he would have known who I was talking about even if we didn't let anybody else know. But he didn't come by, and I hope I'll see him again. I, sometimes I don't see him for one or two or three months. But he's always on my mind when I'm at 7-Eleven, always, because I think this guy really needs Jesus, and he just doesn't understand the, the depth of his sinful nature before God, but the immensity of God's grace towards him. I just don't think he understands that. And if he could just understand how graceful Jesus Christ is, he would come to him on his knees. He'd come in tears. You try to explain it to people and they can't grasp it. But this sermon here may have done that for him. I don't know. Our closing verse today comes from Isaiah 53. It's verse 10. We're talking about a sin offering, right? What does Isaiah have to say about the coming Redeemer? Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. 
He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Thank God for Jesus Christ. I know when you read the book of Leviticus, you think, I just don't understand this. There's so much going on. But if you go line by line, all of a sudden it starts fitting and you start saying, I understand now why he repeated the same thing here and here and here. He's not repeating the same thing. He's giving you little variations of what he is showing the people of Israel. So when he comes, they wouldn't make this mistake. And they made the mistake anyway. They completely rejected it. But for those of us who follow carefully and look at these things, it's like a light coming on. Every time I look at another verse, ah, you think I understood all this before I started preparing these sermons? Not in the least. I had a good comprehension of what's going on, but you start seeing things that are so minutely detailed and so perfect. Oh, God, what a word he's given to us. Next week is Leviticus 4, 13 through 35. We're going to finish the, uh, the um, chapter. What marvelous things are ahead for you? It's entitled The Sin Offering. Thank you. Of your sixth Leviticus sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Here's our poem, The Sin Offering. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, these are the words he began relaying. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, if a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord, if such a thing as this comes to be, in anything which ought not to be done, and does any of them, yes, any such one. If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, to them it is pinned, then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned. A young bull without blemish is a sin offering. Such shall be his proffering. He shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Lay his hand on the bull's head and kill the bull before the Lord, according to this word. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood, this he shall do, and bring it to the tabernacle of meeting, as I am now instructing you. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood, so shall it be seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood, this task he shall be completing, on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall the remaining blood pour of the bull at the base of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the tabernacle of meeting's door. He shall take from it all the fat of the bull as the sin offering, so he shall do, the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat which is on the entrails too. The two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks as I behoove, and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove. As it was taken from the bull of the sacrifice of the peace offering, and the priest shall burn them on the altar of the burnt offering, such is the proffering. But the bull's hide and all its flesh with its head and its legs, its entrails and off all, no doubt, the whole bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn it on wood with fire, as you have learned, where the ashes are poured out, it shall be burned. Our Lord died outside the walls of the city. He died there for the sins of all men on that day. God demonstrated his merciful pity, and in that crucified body, God has opened the way. We now can come home to him once again. We are reconciled through what he alone has done. May we be willing to share this marvel with all men that God has given us new life through his Son. 
praises to God who has done this most marvelous thing for us. All praises to God through our glorious Lord Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, what a precious word you've given us. What a precious word to show us such detail and such care, not only to show what you did for the people of Israel, taking care of them in the wilderness and for thousands of years later, but also the care to show us of what it actually pictures in the coming of Christ and how every detail points to him. And so, Lord, I would like to take a moment and I'd like to pray for that gentleman that uh, uh, is at 7-Eleven and that is curious about you and he, he wants to come to this church. He wants to. He's driven by. He says he knows where it is. He says he knows what's inside, but he won't walk into the door. He's scared, Lord, and help him to not be scared, but to put his trust in you and to step in here and to hear the good word and to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Help him to not be afraid of that act, but to trust in it completely. And there are many other people in all of our lives that we know that haven't done that thing. And we would pray for each one of them in our own hearts now and that you would respond according to your wisdom, leading somebody into their path to say the right thing or bringing them to a low spot where they need to make the right decision. You're capable of all things, Lord. And so we would pray this for each of them. Thank you for our sin offering our Lord Jesus and the cross of Calvary, which cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for him and all he has done for us. And we pray this in his beautiful name. Amen.